You're listening to Backstage at Lyric, the podcast that takes you behind the scenes at Lyric Opera of Chicago. Backstage at Lyric features in-depth interviews with singers, conductors, and creative talents at one of the world's great opera companies. For additional podcast interviews, subscribe to our RSS feed or visit us online at lyricopera.org. Baritone Mark Delavan is backstage at Lyric. You know, this is a remarkable cast. You don't get this lucky very often. It's just real, authentic Italian sound that you're going to get probably once in a blue moon. Thank you for downloading this episode of Backstage at Lyric. I'm Roger Pines of Lyric Opera Chicago. Mark Delavan has become a great favorite at Lyric, where he appeared most recently in his tour de force of playing both Alfio in Cavalleria Rusticana and Tonio in Pagliacci in the same evening. Now he's back with the company as Count Ankeström in a masked ball, the 14th Verdi role in his repertoire. Mark appears regularly in major international houses. This summer he'll be Wotan in San Francisco Opera's production of Wagner's Ring Cycle. Recently, he sat down to talk about Verdi's Mass Ball with Lyric Opera broadcast producer Mark Travis. Before we get to that conversation, here's the story of the opera. Gustavus, king of Sweden, is in love with Amelia, the wife of his best friend and secretary, Count Ankeström. The frightened Amelia meets secretly with a fortune teller, Ulrika, Madame Arvidsson, who advises her to gather an herb that will create a magic potion, enabling her to forget any thought of infidelity. Madame Arvidsson encounters Gustavus as well, and in telling his fortune, she reveals that he will be killed by the next man to shake his hand. When that man turns out to be Ankeström, Gustavus and his friends reject Madame Arvidsson's prediction. Late at night, Amelia is gathering the herb when she meets Gustavus. The two declare their love, but are then surprised by Ankeström. Gustavus asks his friend to escort his veiled companion back to town while asking her no questions. Conspirators plotting against Gustavus demand the lady's identity, and when Amelia lifts her veil, Ankeström is stunned. He later joins the conspirators, and in drawing lots, it's determined that he will be the one to kill the king. At a masked ball, Gustavus is assassinated by Ankeström, but he demands that no one seek vengeance for the murder. Too late, Ankeström learns that his wife is innocent and that Gustavus had decided never to see her again. Now, on to the conversation between baritone Mark Delavan and lyric opera broadcast producer Mark Travis. I hope you enjoy it. You've done, up and until this point, 13, 14. Does it, this, this, makes is number, 14. this is number 14. This makes number 14, right. Uh, how is it that this one eluded you? You know, I don't know that. I, I really have no answer. The only thing I can assume is, is that when I was younger, it was one of those pieces where everybody said, Oh, well, that's too big for him. We'll give him Germain, we'll give him Ford, and we'll give him, uh, we'll give him the third spear carry to the left. And then when I got older, everybody said, oh, well, we'll we want somebody else. We're going to let him do something bigger. I, I think it's one of those kind of medium weight roles. That's the only thing I can figure. 
So now that you've had the opportunity to get to Sweden, as it were, uh, how are you enjoying it? You know, this is a remarkable cast. You don't get this lucky very often. Sandra Rodbanowski and I have worked together quite a few times. You know, one time we even worked together. We were working together and we never sang a note together. We were in a tritico and I was doing Michele in Intavarro and she was doing uh, Suor Angelica. And, you know, we still work together and we still, you know, it was nice to see her and all that. And uh, this is the first time I've ever worked with Stephanie Blythe and she's an unbelievable singer doing Ulrika. And uh, Kathleen Kim is doing Oscar and she's done Oscar a few times and she's just phenomenal. And, And Frank Lepardo and I were talking. We've known each other since 1988 and have never worked together. Um, in 1988, I was kind of a young singer doing whatever I could do to make a living, and he was a Rossini tenor. And then when we finally had reps that crossed, we were just everywhere else that the other one was. And so this has been quite a joy. And I, I've always known Frank, and I've always liked Frank. And and this is just going to be a really terrific, unusual experience to be able to get these kind of Verdi special. No, I wouldn't call them specialist because it, it's just real authentic Italian sound that you're going to get probably once in a blue moon. And isn't it fascinating that it's an all-North American cast? Uh, yeah, it is. It's, it is fascinating. But these are singers that are well-versed in the Italian repertoire, well-versed in Italian style, and in most cases, well-versed in Verdi. And this is just an unusual experience. I mean... I, there's a couple of occasions on stage where Sandra and I don't say a word to each other, but I know exactly what she's thinking. I know she exactly what she wants me to do. And, you know, there's another occasion where, I, I mean, <laughs> just now in this rehearsal that we just left, I reached over and I, sque- I said, I'm squeezing your hand to let you know that I'll help you up. And she said, honey, I know that. <laughs> I, I know that. You don't have to tell me that. And I said, yeah, okay, I forgot. <laughs> What's uh, the experience been like of working with Renata Scotto? This is one of the great masters of Italian literature. She knows exactly what she wants, and she will go to any lengths to get it. And um, that has been a real interesting experience. I haven't worked with her since 1996. When I worked with her before, I think I was doing the fabulous role of the Baron Dufol in La Traviata, Meaning no disrespect to the opera, but, you know, let's face it, it's not the greatest role in the world. It's a lot of middle C's. And it was in New York City Opera, and it was an opera that she did many performances of. And she, and once again, she knew exactly what she wanted. And to come back, to be able to work with her again 14 years later has really been, has really been a, a great experience. I've heard it said that she not only directs the line or, or the singing, but that she also finds time to direct the spaces in between the the notes as well. That is absolutely true. Um, That is absolutely true. She will do that. She will do that periodically. She will stop in the middle of rehearsal. She will come up and she will basically become your character, whether you be a man or a woman or a chipmunk. She will come up. She will be your character. She will do what your character should and would do in the given situation. And she brings the great classic Italian style to it. 
So tell us a little bit about this character. This is only my third production of Balo, and so I admit that, you know, perhaps my own knowledge of it isn't as deep as it may be of other operas, but um, it would seem on the surface that he's kind of the most heroic character. Now, you would get an argument from the, from the typical opera goer. You're going to get an argument there. You're going to say Renato is the bad – Renato slash Ankerström. We're doing the Swedish version is the bad guy. And I would, I would give a profound argument there. I would say, see, I would say, well, wait a minute. First of all, if you take his given right as a cuckolded husband, he has the right to kill both parties. That's his right. That was his historical right. I don't mean to be so, you know, Not animated. And I have to believe in this character. Otherwise, if I can't believe in a character, I can't do it. There are a couple of characters I've stopped doing for that very reason. I won't tell you which ones, but you will see that they're no longer in my repertoire. But Renato, for some reason, gets kind of a bad rap because, oh, he comes out and he murders the tenor. It was his right. In that day, it was his given right. And he makes the choice in the middle of the opera, it's not her fault. It's his fault. My so-called best friend, it's his fault. And I'm going to take it out on him, not her. She's my wife. I will live out my life with her. I will do what I have to do. He, however, will die. I know he's the king, and I, t- I will take what is coming to me. I think that's – do I approve of murder for revenge? No, I don't. But I'm saying for that given period of time, that was a viable alternative. The fact that he was king, it meant nothing to him. He became willing to accept the consequences of his actions. The fact that he was wrong is beside the point. She told him she was innocent. How exactly, given the set of situations that he walked into, is one supposed to believe that she's innocent? She is, but it's like any man, any man that's been married 20 minutes can give you that set of scenarios and say there's no way. There's no way. I agree with you. I think he's completely heroic. And I think from the very beginning of the opera, the man who is considered, you know, he calls him Afida, which means the, the best friend, the faithful friend. From the very beginning, he's trying to warn Gustavo about this plot against his life that he's uncovered. And he ends up in the second act, he actually puts his life at risk to save Gustavo's life. And he even says, he says, I'm willing to throw this life away on your behalf. What ultimately makes him turn? There is a phrase... I believe it happens somewhere in the second act when Amelia has pulled her veil off and we discover that the Ignota Beltà, the unknown beauty, turns out to be none other than Amelia, his wife. I believe there's a moment and there's a beautiful ensemble, a concertante that comes up while the guys are laughing this, ha, 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 ha. Verdi can be so mocking in his, his musical treatment of this scene. There's a place where you can literally hear him change his mind, where he is Cosimi paga se lo salvato, e mala donna contaminato. He, how this man has paid me back for my loyal treatment of him, and he's also contaminated this woman. I think in that little ensemble right there, he makes a decision to do something. He doesn't know exactly what he's going to do, and I don't think he really knows what he's going to do until all is said and done. I think act two and the first scene of act three, you literally catch Renato in a period of transition 
Because the next thing you see him in Act 3, he's saying to her, blood is demanded. You will die. And uh, Renata was very clear, and I'm going to do her beautiful Italian accent for you. She says, he is extremely angry at this point, but he is in control. And she has a very good point. This period of time, nobody lost their temper. Nobody, you know, there's, there's been productions where they open the thing and he's strangling her and it doesn't really work for this period. It doesn't really work for this character. I think he's literally trying to talk himself into doing his duty. You have to die. Blood is demanded. Somebody's got to die for this, sweetheart. I'm really sorry that it has to be you. And, you know, I'm really sorry that, uh, you know, our, our, our only son is going to grow up without a mother. But she probably should have thought of that before you had this adulterous affair, honey. I don't mean to be comical and sarcastic, but the point is, once again, the point is made. This is a very heroic character, and he chooses not to kill her, I think, somewhere in the middle of the aria, middle of Eritu. Probably at the beginning, Eritu, it was, it was you. And um, once again, it's one of those great Verity moments, one of those great plot turns, where even in the course of Act 2, he says to Sam and Tom, we need to talk Sometime this morning, can you come by my house? We need to have a little talk. And the guy says, well, you know, what's to keep you from losing your temple? Don't worry about it. Don't worry about that. I'm paraphrasing. You don't worry about that. You just come and we'll see, you'll see what happens. And I think he's trying to figure out what to do. There's got to be something has to be done. I don't think he really knows what to do until somewhere during 82. Because when they come, by the time Sam and Tom have showed up, He's made his decision. He's made his decision that he's going to join them in their assassination attempt. This is uh, one of the big arias. Of course, it takes place in Act 3. And it's also one of those pieces that I think gets extracted a lot. It's done a lot for auditions, of course. It's done a lot for scenes programs and concerts. I mean, it almost seems like it stands alone in a sense. So, I, I, you know, how much more important is it to have the rest of the context in doing the full production to carry this aria off and monologue, really? I could go both ways with that question, and I, I, I'm going to go both. I just say both, both parts of it because I think it could be answered in two, two different ways. One could say it is easily extractable. All you have to do is play that beautiful cello line. And you're there. You're there in the middle. If anyone knows that opera, you know exactly where you are. If you don't know that opera and you just have, happen to know the Italian or you have the benefit of surtitles, anybody can read this and figure out exactly what has happened. So in that case, yes, indeed, it is completely extractable. However, this being such an unusually opulent opera, almost a stylistically transitional piece, because you can hear all aspects of Verdi during this piece. You can hear his early period. You can hear the... You can hear that weird... And if it were in a major key, you'd go, oh, that's so sweet. <laughs> but since it's in a minor key, you go, mm, something bad's going to happen. He just paints these little pictures where your mind goes, that's not quite right. And there will be other moments that are true bel canto. Um, Amelia's second act aria, where she's out on the 
gallows. Mm-hmm. That's almost pure bel canto. And then her third act aria, Moro, is almost verismo. And that whole scene, act, the first scene of act three, is leaning towards Otello. Whereas even Gustavo's first act aria and then Renato's Alla Vita is pure bel canto. It literally, during the course of the evening, can span up to 35 years of music. And so you have all of this, in addition to the drama that goes on, you've really got something. So when you take the full evening of music and then you insert Eritu into that, it becomes a dramatic turn. It becomes the place in the opera where things suddenly switch. And then you have this really, you've turned from this rather light, almost frivolous plot. Oh, boy meets girl. Isn't that cute? Oh, she's being adulterous. Ha, ha, ha. Aren't we cute? Then it gets dark and somber. And so I love your question, but actually both apply. You've had the opportunity to be immersed in Verdi. Uh, We mentioned 14 roles. Before we go on about the 14 roles, I have to say something. I was so pleased because that's such a wonderfully round number, 14. And then Sandra Rodvanovsky reminded me, who is considerably younger than I am, said, oh, yes, I'm on number 17. And I went, okay, I think I'll stop bragging now about number 14. As many as that is, I thought... Okay, that, that, that will do, Mr. Delavan. Thank you so much. <laughs> what do you make of the term Verdi baritone? Does that have any meaning to you? Do we make too much of, uh, of trying to categorize this vocal style? You know, it, had it been 20 years ago, I would have said, oh, no, that's, that's a very specific type of baritone. And yes, to a certain degree, I think that I think that there has to be a certain kind of a color, and I think a, a certain weight to the voice. But it's 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 been interesting over the years to see to see other people performing Verdi roles. For instance, that wonderful telecast of Placido Domingo doing Simon Bocanegra and bringing some amazing drama to it. And some of my friends, Dmitry Horostovsky and uh, Thomas Hampson, are both doing. They're both being doing the Scottish opera, which we're not allowed to say on air because the, the roof might actually fall in on us. And he's also doing the title role in Simone Bocanegra quite a bit. And um, I think the line between lyric baritone and, say, Verdi baritone has been blurring for quite a, quite a while. The last generation, there were guys that were virtually basses singing Verdi baritone roles. One of my favorite examples was Silvano Carroli who I heard sing at San Francisco Opera a couple of times doing, I believe, this opera first, and then I heard him sing Trovatore, and that was a huge voice and a very, very dark sound. So the line becomes a little bit blurred. Well, uh, congratulations on number 14. (laughs) Thank you such that it is. And uh, wish you uh, the best of luck with this production. Thank you very much. You've been listening to Backstage at Lyric the podcast that takes you behind the curtain at Lyric Opera of Chicago. For additional interactive content and to order tickets, visit us online at lyricopera.org. <laughs>